For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Welcome to today's episode of The ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network. We bring you conversations with experienced professionals in the world of sports could be a player a coach an executive today's is someone who i have known since gosh we're dating both ourselves coach uh, i believe it was 1995 i was a a young high school student athlete in the, the portland area and he was the head coach at the time at pepperdine recruiting me uh almost went there but we've since uh become close friends as, as uh, my college broadcasting duties take me all over the place. I, I've been uh, grateful to be able to follow his coaching career and, and cheer for his teams when they're not playing against my alma mater. Uh, glad to have Coach Lorenzo Romar on today's episode. Coach, life has got to be good in Malibu considering all the circumstances uh, with the current pandemic still going on and not being able to, to do what you love to do, and that's coach your team. It's tough. It's tough. But the, the toughest part about it, Dan, is uh, we realized this and we told our team since March 9th, when our regular season, conference tournament season had just ended and we were looking to possibly be able to play in the CBI tournament, postseason tournament. But we weren't sure they were going to get the pairings. But now COVID was in its infant stages and Rudy Gobert comes out <clears throat> and it happens. He tests positive. And from that point on, we've been telling our team to today, we'll know in a couple of weeks. We'll know something in a couple of weeks. Hopefully we'll know something. By July, we should be able to come back and go to summer school. Well, hopefully by August, that's been the toughest part is just the uncertainty of the whole situation and trying to keep your, your, your guys focused on what's going on. You know, we're online, so the guys 
uh, were online at the end of the school year last year, summer school. So they, uh, they've become accustomed to that. But just not knowing when the season is going to start, uh, when they can come back as a group on campus, all of that's been the most difficult part of everything. Well, I can imagine as a coach, and you've got some players from overseas, you've got some players that uh, you obviously develop relationships while you're recruiting them and then while they're on campus, you also kind of take over a father figure role for a lot of these kids, I'm sure. Uh, I I've talked to a number of your former players from the University of Washington, Will Conroy, uh, to name an example, that basically said, hey, look, Lorenzo Romar has been as influential as a person off the court for me as they were on the court. How do you, how do you view your role right now in guiding these young men uh, in these uncertain times? Because they look to you for direction on the basketball court, but that's taken away at this moment in time, but you can still have a big impact, I'm sure. Well, it's a great question, Dan. In uh, June and July, when we were in summer school online, they weren't on campus, we met three times a week via Zoom. On Mondays, we had a guest speaker come in or get on the Zoom call with us and talk to our team. We had a, a sheriff, a former sheriff, uh, who was raised in Compton that talked about, you know, the social justice issues and justice issues and uh, how to deal with the police. Then we went from there, Isaiah Thomas, formerly of the Detroit Pistons, came on and spoke to our team. We had a guy that uh, climbed Mount Everest and talked about what it was like to do that and how you needed your team to be with you. We had a junior Bridgman who played in the NBA who was little, most people don't know, is the second or third uh, richest NBA player of all time in terms of when they retired. And he talked about how he accumulated his wealth, how he invested in those type of things. Um, Doug Christie, former Pepperdine player, 15-year uh, pro in the NBA, spoke with our team. Uh, Warren Moon, who, uh, you know, dealt with issues with race as a quarterback. They didn't allow him to uh, play in the NFL initially as a quarterback. So it was a number of different speakers, covered a lot of different ground. And then we talked basketball on Wednesday and Friday. Between then and now, there's been a whole lot of individual conversations just checking in, how you're doing, what's going on, those type of things. <clears throat> I've heard that from a number of coaches that have done similar things to, because they couldn't be face-to-face -face with their team uh, in meeting settings. They couldn't be on the floor with them. I can only imagine, though, you're pretty excited to get your team back together. You've got one of the most kind of underrated point guards in all of college basketball and Colby Ross. Give us a little preview for, for – the excitement that you have for your team, because in everything that I've been reading and talking to other people, it looks like there's going to be a college basketball season happen. It's just a matter of how creative can in individual teams, leagues, and maybe event organizers get to give as many teams as possible an opportunity to play a somewhat normal schedule. I'm not going to tell you that he's as good as these guys. I'm not going to tell you he's as good as, Steve Nash. I'm not going to tell you he's as good as some of these guys, but, you know, I remember at UCLA when I was an assistant, we played against a team and we told our guys, look, we're in the Maui Classic. We said, this guard is maybe the best guard we'll face all year. And they're like, well, how good could he be? We're at UCLA. He said, 
Santa Clara, and it was Steve Nash. And he single-handedly beat us. And we were number one in the country at the time. There was another guard that uh, we talked about when I was at University of Washington. They came in, Cecil, I mean, uh, Felder, the guy from Oakland, the lefty. You know who oh, I'm talking about? Scorer hey, from a hey, few years back. Yes. He came in and had 37, you know. Uh, South Dakota State had a point guard. You remember who he was, Dan? Uh, Nate Walters. Nate Walters. Played for the Bucks he, for, I think, two years. Yes. He came in. No one had ever heard of him, you know. And, and uh, I say this as a compliment to you. I don't think you were like a nationwide household name, uh, but you were giving people buckets. and You were winning games. You were a pro. And again, I'm not saying Kobe's as good as any of the names I've just said, but I just know he's that guy. You know, we, we play Arizona, he goes for 20-something. We play SC, he goes for 36. You know, he's, uh, he's, he shows up in big games. He's a heck of a winner. As a junior, he broke the all-time assist record, and if we'd had two more games, he'd been all-time leading scorer and is as competitive as anyone around. He's a very, very good basketball player. Yeah, I've had a chance to call a number of your guys' games um, for college basketball television work, and I've been impressed. I've, I've seen improvement from freshman year through junior year, and I can only imagine you're excited to coach him in what's going to look like a senior season that happens. But you mentioned something that was pretty interesting to me. You mentioned UCLA versus Santa Clara. Yeah. When I was a kid, I used to tape every game that I could get my – VCR right. to work back in the day, or if I had a blank VHS tape. Right. And I remember taping that game. I remember watching that game. You watched it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, yeah. I was a Steve Nash fan before yeah. uh, right. people really knew what, who Steve Nash was. Right. When you look back at your UCLA teams, you spent, I believe, four or five seasons with Jim Herrick on the bench. You mm -hmm. guys won a national title in 1995. Besides winning a national title, which I can only imagine brings back – that phrase brings back a lot of memories. Is there anything in particular about your time at UCLA that was special? I grew up in Compton where we would catch the bus on weekends for two hours to get to Westwood just to possibly run into one of the UCLA players or John Wooden. Uh, they would open Pauley Pavilion up and they were probably eight baskets around like a camp situation. And you know, there were three-on-three -three games going on all over the place, four-on-four, -four, all through there. And we'd go up there, and, you know, some of the greatest competition was there. Uh, I was growing up when those titles were were happening, you know, when they were winning those championships when Coach Wooden was the coach. So to end up going there, and I remember having my own key, putting that in the door when there were so many times we went up there and just – we catch the bus two hours and the gym was closed. We have to catch the bus two hours back back to Compton. And now I have my own key to UCLA's gym, to Pauley Pavilion. It was pretty special. The people that you're around when you're there at UCLA, what comes with the job. But the times that you were able to spend with John Wooden was, uh, was just priceless, priceless. I can only imagine. I had a chance to meet him a, a couple of times my senior year being a Wooden All-American. I was around him at the Final Four. I was around him uh, at the Wooden Award weekend. Uh, and then months later, I was around him when he came spoke my rookie year to the Atlanta Hawks. And every time that I had spoke to him, there had been a little bit of lapse in time. He remembered details from our previous conversation. And as a 23-year-old at the time, 
looking at someone who I believe would have been maybe mid eighties at the time. And remember thinking about their mental acuity, their attention to details, their interest in a conversation with somebody like myself who couldn't do anything for coach Wooden at the time, uh, absolutely blew me away. Yeah. Is there any, I'm sure you've got hundreds of them. Um, but is there one or two examples of a, a conversation that you just, you had with coach Wooden that you just walked away and, and you were just floored by him or what he had said? You hit it on the head. It happened so many times. But I'm going to give you a couple things that, that I remember stood out. One was uh, we brought, brought my staff when we first, first became head coach at Pepperdine, brought my staff to coach's condominium and just talk basketball. For about four hours we were talking. And, man, he was great. They loved it. He had agreed to speak at a coach's clinic that we had at Pepperdine later that summer in July or August. And this was May, I believe it was, and we met with Coach. The reason I tell you those different months is to put this in perspective. When we left his house that day, he called me about 30 minutes later, and he says, one of your assistants was sitting in my couch and dropped some change and left it on the couch. So I said, <clears throat> okay, coach, thanks, we'll, we'll get it. Like, okay, he left change, no big deal. Didn't mention anything else about it. When he spoke at our clinic, I had to go pick him up and got him and he sat out in the car and handed me the 75 cents change that the assistant had left over there. I mean, he was detailed in everything. But then what was awesome is he also that year in our first year of Pepperdine came to watch a practice. We invited him to practice and coaches sitting there at half court watching us practice, you know, so practice ends and we, we get him and we sit him down. Okay, coach, let us hear it. Where, where can we get better? What did you see? And of course the man, he would never tell you what to do. He would at most give you his opinion. And he said, you know what? I, oh, you're doing a fine job and nothing. He says, you know, the three on two conditioner drill, now, Dan, do you know what three-on-two conditioner drill is? Yeah, when pretty much every team has run it from youth up to the NBA. Every team, right? <laughs> yes. Well, one of my coaches, Coach Ammon, Kenny Ammon, he suggested that, you know, you got people running in from the sideline. It's continuous, fast, break drill. He said, why don't we do it to where we have teams? One team is on one sideline, the other team's on, and make it competitive. We, I'd never done that before. And we started doing that because at his suggestion. So – Coach watches, he says, the three-on-two conditioner drill, I really like that. He said, you know, uh, you had them competing against each other. I, I, if I was coaching still, I think I would do that. I think I would do it like that. Then he said, you know, when I first put that drill in, whoa, 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 coach, everyone got this drill from you? He started that drill. <laughs> that blew me away. And then another one of our guys uh, who liked flavor, he liked he, showmanship. He liked the fancy passes and all of that and the N1 mixtapes. And he really loved that type of basketball. And Coach Wooden talked to our team that same day. And any questions? So as Coach was talking about how he loved fundamentals and all of that, uh, this guy raises his hand. He says, you ever coach against Pete Maravich, right? 
That's your guy, Dan. Oh, yeah. Favorite player says, of all time. You may not want to hear this story. <laughs> he said, you ever coach against Pete Marysbridge? He says, oh, yeah. He just he says, could he have played for you? He says, oh, not with all that fancy play. We wouldn't have let him do that. So we kind of laughed, you know. He said, so I guess the guy felt like he was setting him up. He says, what happened when you coached against him? He said, we beat them by the largest margin that they had ever been beaten by. We held him 20 points below his average. I'll never forget that. <laughs> no more questions, Coach Wooden. <laughs> but I can't tell you how many times he would speak to groups and literally grown men would cry. They would, he would speak, and it was one of those situations, Dan, where it was silence for about 10 seconds, and then one person would clap, then another person would clap, then all of a sudden he has a standing ovation. He was just, he was just mesmerizing with not only his knowledge of basketball, but his knowledge of life. Wisdom, wisdom, not just knowledge, wisdom. Some of those little stories right there makes me want to pull out uh, of my closet some of those John Wooden books and reread them oh. uh, because it seems like every time I hear a story about John Wooden or I read a book or something, you learn something new that you can file away and hopefully use to impact somebody again later on, whether yeah. for me it's coaching my son's team or you coaching you know, a high-level college team. That's so awesome to hear those stories about John Wooden. But every coach needs their start, and every coach needs somebody to kind of pour into them. It sounds like John Wooden poured into you quite a bit of your time at UCLA and Pepperdine. Where did your coaching start come? Because you grew up in L.A. You went to junior college, I believe it was Cerritos, for a couple of years before going to UW, played That's the right. NBA. But not everybody um, gets that coaching bug. Um, and it's not easy to transition from playing to coaching. How did you get your coaching start? I didn't – I never thought I was going to be a coach. I didn't grow up – you know, a lot of my assistants, guys that I've worked with in this profession, their fathers were coaches or their uncles. There's a lineage of coaches in their family. That wasn't the case with me. Uh, when I was with Athletes in Action, I was with them seven years, and, you know, we had a great basketball schedule that we would play games. And our coach uh, <clears throat> went on to do something else, and at the time – we were having trouble finding someone to replace him. And I made a suggestion. I said, you know what? I, I still want to play, but I wouldn't mind coaching, being a player coach. So a guy named Dave Lauer, who you may have met with Athletes in Action. Yeah, Dave and I co-coached the team. So, you know, you're playing Georgetown with Alonzo Mourning. You're playing Oregon State with, with Gary Payton. You're playing LSU with, at the time, Chris Jackson, Shaquille O'Neal. You're playing all these great programs. You got to prepare. We find a way to get film. When we prepare, we had to recruit. We had to schedule. And I really start to enjoy it. And that's when I got the coaching book. And at that time, um, Jim Herrick offered me a position at UCLA. And as I told you previously about how I felt about that, I, uh, I went after it. And that's how I got going. It's so fascinating for me to hear former players kind of get that coaching bug. Um, you know, I personally, I thought I was going to go into coaching. It ended up being uh, broadcasting was my path. The one thing I like about the broadcasting, though, is, Coach, and 
when you're done coaching, and I'm saying done, done, please don't come and take my job because I know oh. <laughs> you'll be very, you would be very good at it. But the fact is, as a broadcaster, I can be done with the game. I don't have to watch yeah. film. I don't have to break down a, a scouting right. report for the next uh, opponent. I can right. just go back and, and right. hope that I didn't mess up too many names that day yeah. or, or yeah. use the wrong phrase. Um, yeah. Outside of Coach Herrick and Coach Wooden, did you have a high school coach or maybe a, a youth coach that really influenced you growing up in L.A.? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I wasn't – I didn't really have that good of coaching until I was a freshman in junior college. Uh, I just – that was just how it was. Uh, great people that I was under but didn't have anyone to really teach me the game. It was just kind of playing on the playgrounds of Compton. But when I got to uh, junior college, Bob Forrest or Jack Bogdanovich, those were the two coaches that were there. They started to teach me how to really play the game and teach me the fundamentals of the game. And, you know, it's interesting. From that point on, I played for Marv Harshman, who was in the, was in the Hall of Fame. I played for Al Adels with the Golden State Warriors. He's in the NBA Hall of Fame. From there, I went and played for Don Nelson, Milwaukee Bucks, another Hall of Famer, and then Chuck Daly. At the, with the Detroit Pistons, another Hall of Famer. And over the years, you don't realize how much basketball you're learning from all of these coaches. Uh, when I got into coaching, John, uh, Jim Herrick was a John Wooden disciple. I mean, he did everything Coach Wooden did, uh, tried to. Tried to really emulate uh, how he ran his program. And that influence helped Coach Herrick help me to learn how to run a practice, devise a practice plan, how to run a program, all of those things. But then there were other influences, uh, such as Lute Olson, who recently passed. Uh, when I became a head coach, he was one of the guys I wanted to meet with because of what they did offensively. I wanted to do whatever they were doing there. Uh, Rick Majerus, someone else who has passed away. I was on uh, with USA Basketball as an assistant with him. Tom Izzo, I was with an, an assistant with him. And these guys were very good, and I learned a lot from them. But I'm going to tell you, some guy that I learned as much basketball from as anybody, he was one of my assistants, Randy Bennett. And I always said I was the head coach, but really, uh, he was a better coach. He knew more than I knew, even when he was an assistant. I could just tell that. And you want to surround yourself with good people some that are as good or better than you uh, in what to do. And he was definitely that. So there are a lot of influences. I'm kind of a hybrid of uh, many, many coaches and many, many different personalities. But, Dan, what's, what's important is that, and you didn't ask me this, is you can't look at someone who's successful and just say, okay, I'm going to be like that. Because they may not be your personality. I remember when Bobby Knight was in his heyday, you had these coaches yelling at everybody and being tough, and that wasn't really their personality. It didn't come out right, and it didn't work for them. You know, John Wooden, as great as he was, I, I can't be John Wooden. John Wooden never talked about winning, ever. He never mentioned a word to his guys. I've talked to him enough, to his players, and he didn't talk about winning. He talked about being their best. And there are times when I just find myself falling in, okay, if we win these next two, we're in this position. It's just you, you got to be who you are and see what fits your personality and your beliefs. I love that in talking about getting your coaching style based on philosophy – or excuse me, personality has to fit because I have seen coaches 
um, that haven't stayed true to their own personality and it's, and it's impacted them, uh, obviously in keeping their jobs, nobody wants to lose their jobs, but you have to stay true to yourself. And if you do that, you'll have a chance, I believe to, to have a longer run of success. I want to stay in LA and I want to stay kind of talking about youth basketball for a second. Uh, I've had a number of LA area people uh, on this podcast and I've asked him this question. Harvey Katani is one, uh, Jason Hart, Casey Jacobson are a couple others that I've recently interviewed. And you've seen a lot of players from your time playing as well as evaluating and recruiting. Who are the best high school players to ever come out of Southern California, but in particular, the LA area? <laughs> you That's know the answer. <laughs> Dan, the, the legend that uh, everyone talks about was, was a guy named Raymond Lewis. And you can, if anyone wants to doubt it, you can go back to, I believe it's 1978, Marvin Webster was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and there was about an eight-page article on Raymond Lewis, and he never played in the NBA. Uh, he was someone that was just a phenomenal scorer. He was a guy that, uh, if you compared him to anyone, he was probably more like a Steph Curry or a Mahmoud Raouf, somebody like that, that just was a bucket, as they say. Uh, Marcus Johnson. Marcus Johnson was uh, just a man-child. Uh, Paul Westfall was great coming up in L.A. You know, later you had Paul Pierce uh, was great. You know, we when, when us older guys start talking about the greats, you forget you got it now. You got to throw James Harden and Russell Westbrook. You got to throw those guys in there now. I mean, those guys are going to be Hall of Famers. But uh, there are so many, and we are very fortunate to have grown up and, and played against a lot of these guys or were or got to know him, but there is no one in LA that would tell you different that saw Raymond Lewis play that he wasn't the best. You know, that's, uh, I pride myself on uh, reading as much as I can about the game of basketball and, and the history. And I have come across a, a number of articles on Raymond Lewis and kind of sharing exactly what you just told us. The fact that he was unstoppable, maybe yeah. a little bit of an undersized guard could shoot it from well beyond what would be the three point line. Now was creative with the bounce, uh, could do it all. And unfortunately, you know, things, um, I don't know all the details, but it didn't work out for him as a player to make it to the next level. But I love hearing, you know, those stories about best players from yours because it generates a lot of conversation and, and hopefully fun debate amongst people. There, now, there you can uh, – let me tell you this. Try this out. When you're in L.A., you find someone – now, look, they can't – it can't be where they've heard of Raymond Lewis. In some kind of way, they saw him at some point. Two things will happen. When you ask him how good was Raymond Lewis, the first thing is you won't get an answer because the response is going to be something like, oh, oh, my goodness. That's what's going to be the first response. Yeah. The second response is if there are other people around, the person you asked about Raymond Lewis will start telling Raymond Lewis stories and they won't be able to stop telling them. Both those things happen every time with Raymond Lewis. Now, I'm going to tell you, Dan, he was 6'3". People don't realize that. He was six foot three inches and uh, he ran 100. Back then it was a 100-yard dash and he ran it in a 9'9". 
So he was fast. He was athletic as he needed to be. But he was just, you talk about hand-eye coordination, dexterity. He was just off the charts with all that. I I look forward to asking somebody in the L.A. area uh, that same question um, when I'm down. Hopefully I can be with you and we'll do it. Hopefully I can be with you somehow. I say, watch, watch, ask him, watch. Maybe at a shoot-around covering college basketball next season, you can kind of point to somebody that you know would have seen it. We can test your theory. That would be a lot of fun. The other thing you mentioned as a youth growing up would be you would catch the bus to go have a chance to maybe get into Poly Pavilion and and watch some guys work out or be able to play three-on-three, pick up basketball on the side. That's definitely changed in the youth basketball culture. Now, I know as a a college coach, you can't be overly critical of, of the scenario because you have to be able to go out and watch these players in different settings. But what is missing, in your opinion, from good players at this day and age at the high school level um, because of everything being structured and not just going out and playing pickup where you got to figure out the teams on the fly and you win, you stay on the court. I think the way, you know, I hate to say, well, back in our day, you know, I hate to say that, but, you know, there was a time, let me say it that way. There was a time where there was AAU basketball, but wasn't at the magnitude that it is now. Uh, it seems like now basketball is regulated to AAU tournaments and working with your personal trainers, right? We would play, whether it was three on three, five on five, whatever it was, that's one thing. But the fact is there would be 20 to 30 people in the gym. And if you lost, you were going to sit out for an hour, 45 minutes to an hour, unless you were good enough, someone picked you up when you came off the court, right? when you play pickup game and you know, you'd have a board sometimes up there on the wall and you'd have to sign your name in as you had next. And then the next person would sign in after those. And when, when, when that person would play, they scratched their name off and you had to wait your turn. You did not have to worry about someone totally taking a bad shot when the score was eight to eight and you're going to nine, you learned shot selection, you defended, you went to the board, you boxed out because you don't want to have to wait an hour. There was that internal pressure just from the nature of the pickup game that we would play all the time. You know, uh, you even had to learn how to argue your call. <laughs> you know, there was, a, there was an art to that, to make sure you got your calls. You know, it was just everything to do about competing, Dan, is what we did. And you carried that over into your season when you played. I just think guys learned to compete more. They weren't interested in all of the, as much in the peripheral things that go on within basketball. Uh, guys know each other. They've been playing against each other since the fourth grade. Um, no matter how great a player he is, they're like, yeah, that's so-and-so. We've been playing against each other the fourth grade. So in that respect, they're not intimidated by anything. But uh, I just think being able to compete and work on your game at any cost because you had no other way to do it. You had to find a way to get better. I love that because I grew up in the same kind of uh, thought process of earn your, earn your way onto the court and then earn your keep 
to stay on the court. And then if you're good enough, guys will start telling you, hey, we're playing pickup over here. We're playing right. pickup over That's there. Right. That's exactly and then you right. kind of know when you've made it when, you know, for me in the Portland area, you know, hey, I got like four different places I can pick and choose where to go. Let's That's figure right. out who the best players are. Yeah. Earn your stripes against the best, the best group. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you, I, I don't know. Uh, I told you I didn't think about coaching until later, but I did things that coaches do even when I was younger. Uh, I would even, uh, if I knew it was going to be a good run, good pickup games, I would get there before anyone else, but I wouldn't take the first game. I'd let someone else play the first game. I had next, but I knew I had my studs coming in. I, if, if the game started at 10 a.m., I'd tell them don't get here until 10.15. So at 10.15, that game's about to end, and here come my guys. <laughs> so we got the best players, so we have, hold the court down the whole day. <laughs> That's crafty. I love it. Always thinking like a point guard, and, and point guards make a lot of the best coaches. So you can see those kind of evolution of your your mind working in that direction. Yeah. I want to touch on University of Washington before I let you go. And, and obviously, you know, you were let go after 15 years. And yeah. you gra- you graduated and you finished your college basketball career at the University of Washington. And I've read some articles and seen some interviews where you've essentially said, hey, years ago, if I would have been able to say, hey, I'm going to be a head coach of my alma mater for 15 years, and we're going to have X amount of players go to the NBA and have successful careers. We're going to graduate pretty much everybody that comes to our school. We're going to get to the NCAA tournament, um, you know, as many times as you did. I think it was three Pac-12 tournament champs, two regular season Pac-12 championships, is that was that a storybook 15 years for you coach it was uh what you just said pretty much summed it up that's nothing that i could have dreamed up i mean it would have just been a dream that uh, uh again i didn't grow up wanting to coach i just knew i was obsessed with the game and loved the game and i remember how much i admired coach harshman when i played for him and i watched what he did and how he was able to impact people as well in a positive way. And again, uh, when I was an assistant, people would ask me, what was your dream job if you became a head coach? And I'd say, if I can coach at University of Washington where I went to school. And I remember getting the job, Dan, and uh, having my former teammates over to my house, uh, the guys that I played with and just telling them, man, I'm fortunate to be in this, but this is our program, guys. This is our program, you know, uh, and all the other alums that played there, that's how I felt. So to be in that position was uh, very much like a storybook situation. So I had, I wasn't bitter at all when I was fired. You know, that was 15 years more than many thought that I would ever get there. You made the comment it was our program in regards to talking about your former teammates and alumni. And I can definitely say I think you made it feel that way because in talking and in getting to know a couple of other guys that have played at at UW, um, you know, there is so much pride between Nate Robinson, Brandon Roy, you know, Will Conroy, and the list goes on and on about the pride they have in, in being Huskies and in particular playing for you that's got to bring a lot of uh, joy to you knowing that you've impacted those guys to really have loved their experience um, and speak about the university of Washington in such a way. You know, that um, 
you may know because of the nature of what you do, but the average person, even the average basketball fan, they couldn't tell you how many games we won during my time at the University of Washington. They couldn't tell you. But the testimonials of the players that would say maybe their lives were better as a result, the things that they learned and the things that they implement in raising their kids, things that they do in their professional jobs, things maybe they learned at the University of Washington, those things last forever. And those are the things that have always been important to me. So uh, in order to be in that position to impact people, you have to be successful. So we were able to do it for 15 years. And um, to hear them come back, they come back, bring their kids, or I still see them today, or watch the things they do, the fathers they become, the, the dads they become. That's, that's what it's all about. You mentioned a couple of the players that you, you had at the University of Washington. And one of the things that I think, you know, for, for a Husky basketball fan has to have a lot of pride in is the fact that um, you did a really nice job of keeping a lot of the best players from the Seattle area home where there's kind of that pride. Hey, I'm playing for my hometown city, my hometown university. It allows their family and friends to, to be at as many games as possible and to kind of be entrenched uh, in the community. SB Live in March and April, we ran a really interesting and unique um, kind of fan poll to vote on who the best high school basketball player was from the year 2000 to current. Uh -huh. And when we went through this list, we had a couple misses, but we had – Husky after Husky on this list and for I'm, I'm going to tell you the winner and then I want you to I want to ask you who you think was the greatest high school basketball player from 2000 to 2020 that came out of the state of Washington now when I say high school basketball player it also throws their college career into the mix and if they made it to the pros so they people had to kind of figure out exactly how those played in together so Isaiah Thomas was voted the best player from the state of Washington from 2000 on. Who would you say is the greatest player in the state of Washington that came from the state of Washington 2000 and on? It's hard to argue Isaiah. You know, Isaiah was an NBA all-star. Isaiah went to the NCAA tournament uh, every year he was in college. He won three titles, whether they were conference titles or, or, or league titles. If he would have come back his senior year, he would have been the all-time assist, steals, and scoring leader in the school's history. So he had an illustrious high school career. So it's hard to keep him out of it, but it's also hard to keep Brandon Roy out of this uh, situation. If Brandon were not hurt, there's no doubt in my mind he would have been in the NBA Hall of Fame. There's no doubt. Uh, there, was a, there was a time when he was one of the, probably the 10 best players in the entire league. And you talk about Kobe Bryant and anyone else who would listen, uh, those guys all respected Brandon Roy. So those are two good ones right there. You know, uh, he hasn't been an all-star, but I don't think there's anyone other than Jamal Crawford because Jamal's in there too now. Uh, yeah, the, the little disclaimer on Jamal is the fact that he graduated high school in 98, so he well, wasn't that, involved in that poll, but well, I would agree. Right, Jamal that's right. Was but the guy you don't hear mentioned as much is, is uh, Marvin Williams. And you got to see, you know, he went to – he won a national championship in his freshman year in North Carolina, and he's still in the NBA, you know. So he's done pretty well also. 
Absolutely. I, I believe our final four for that coach, just so you know, were, were Isaiah Thomas, Brandon Roy, um, Zach Levine, and I believe Michael Porter Jr., um, who obviously committed to you at the University of Washington and then ended up going to Missouri for a year. Um, but there's been a tremendous amount of, of talent that have come out of Washington. There's been a tremendous amount of talent that have come through L.A., and, and you touched on some of those. Coach, I really appreciate your time today. It's always good connecting. Hopefully there is a college basketball season. And I have a chance to cover Pepperdine up close and in person this year again because uh, you guys are absolutely trending in the right direction, and, and I look forward to, to watching Colby Ross again this year. So, Coach, we appreciate it, and thanks. Have a great day. Hey, and kudos to you, man. It's not easy to, to change careers and be successful in, at a high level on one and then another, and, and that's what you're doing. It's a great job. All right. Thanks again, Coach. Take care. Okay, Dan. The ISO with Dan Dickow in SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.